Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside in the suburbs of New York City. An apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Andrew, I, I always say this, but I'm, I'm so happy to speak to you. It's a beautiful sunny day here. It's, it's cool outside, but so yeah. what? It's, it's March. Um, I'm excited about this podcast Please tell everyone, all our listeners, what's, what's coming up in the podcast. And then I got to ask you a life question. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay, well, what's coming up on the podcast is a lot of things. We'll get into some of the chaos from over the weekend involving Lee Mason. And if there is a lonelier feeling on planet Earth than the one that he was feeling uh, on Saturday afternoon. We'll also take a look, JJ, a little bit while we're talking about Brighton went on in that game. Uh, a little bit of a relegation breakdown because I feel like we haven't really taken a trip down to the bottom of the table. Maybe we need to do that as we head into the final stretch run of the season and kind of take stock of where some of these teams are at, who should be scared, who should be feeling okay. Uh, Is Bale back? (laughs) We will debate and discuss. Uh, And then we'll also start to wonder if maybe we need to worry about Leicester City just a little bit because I wonder if history is repeating from uh, what went on near the end of last season and what's going on now in this season. Uh, A few things from around the globe too, later in the podcast, more dysfunction in Barcelona. It's, it's unbelievable what's going on there. A couple us soccer notes and Netflix has a new documentary out about a soccer player that maybe you've heard of. And we will talk about that. I will give, I've watched it. I stayed up till midnight last night, JJ watching the Pele documentary on Netflix. Well, I've met the man. So it's fresh in my mind. I've met the man, Andrew. I've met Pele. We've, we've, we've broken bread together. So, first of all, I don't know that you broke bread. You saw him and spoke to him. Did you eat together? No. Oh, so you're a liar. Um, so yeah, but I watched the documentary late last night. It's fresh in my mind. I, I wrote down some notes on it. So I'm excited to talk about that. And we're going to revisit what you were just talking about when you did speak with him and you had a microphone in your hand and you hit record and you talked with Pele. Uh, and so we, that was uh, five years ago, I think. 2016, oh yeah. Wow, it doesn't um, feel like that was that long ago. But we're going to go and, and replay that for people who never heard it. Yeah, it's, it wasn't my finest hour, not my finest interview. I went in like, you know, all the president's men and came out like the blogger from the high school reporter. Um, not very, very well prepared, but the man charmed me. But it's worth having a, having a listen to, uh, if for any reason, just for my uncomfortability. Well, you really are a master of the tease, aren't you? It's good. I try to set it up. JJ spoke to Pele. It's a, it's a landmark moment in the history of this podcast. And yeah. all you want to do is tell people that it's really not worth listening to. I'm, I'm, I've gone full Andrew Gundling on this one. It's, it's a flagellation of the self. Um, can, I, can I just quickly ask you a very quick life question? Uh, our listeners, both male and female, uh, will be able to, to, to chip in on this one and help me out. Um, how do you break up with your barber, Andrew? I've, I've had enough with my barber, and you this... know what it's like. The fear of going somewhere else far outweighs the fact that the experience now is, is not, it's not good anymore. He, I, this I come is an in, amazing question. Yeah, I come in. Uh, you can see I have a fresh, fresh haircut and, uh-huh. and a beard trim. So that's, you know, that's 40 bucks before you start to do both. Um, plus, you want to tip him properly. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's not a non-nice person. He's just not a nice person. <laughs> and he's only happy at the end when I reach for my, for my wallet. The whole experience is not 
it's not fun. He kind of bashes my head around a bit. Um, what? Yeah, is he Edward Scissorhands? <laughs> no, but it's not. I, I've always thought that, especially in New York, a barbershop experience should be a bit more, a bit more fun, convivial. It's a hangout as much as it is a haircut. There, there's no chatting. There's no, ch- and you know me, I, I usually love no chatting. But there's, there's, there's no chatting at all. All right, so two questions. Yeah. The, well, really one question. Are you going to continue going to this barber shop? You just want a different barber or are you going to leave this establishment altogether? It's too hard to go in there. It's Russian roulette when I go in there. I don't know which one I'm going to get and it's usually him. I've, uh, I've had a haircut from, from the other lady in there. She's been great. I've had a haircut from a younger fella who maybe looked like a dollar a dime store, uh, a dollar store, Olivier Giroud. Uh, he, he went too far with it, but he was good. Yeah. He was very, like very attentive. This guy is, yeah. Um, so you didn't answer my question. So what are you doing? Are you going to leave completely and go to a different shop? I think I'm going to have to break off completely. Maybe I'll right, go Well, in there. then I think it's pretty easy for you then. You just stop going. You're, well, you're under, you didn't sign any contract. You're under no obligation to go in and explain yourself. Just go somewhere else. I know, but you know it can be erratic. You can go into one place. You've been there. You've gone to another guy. Let me tell you about my barber breakup. Because my whole childhood, I went to this place called Mario's in, uh, near where I lived outside of Philadelphia. And I went to this, this guy. I won't use any names or whatever. And uh, I went to this guy forever. Uh, up through you know, elementary school, middle school, into high school. And the problem with him was he gave a damn good haircut. I felt right. good about every single one of those. And you know how that's not easy for me. I usually hate the way my hair looks after a haircut. Yeah. Um, he gave a really good one. But my God, did it take forever. Forever. See, I don't mind that. And I've got, I'm just, my haircut is easy. It's just like, give me the generic white male haircut. That's <laughs> it. Bang, boom, bing. We're out of here. We're sitting there for an hour. And I'm watching people who come and go, come and go. There, 15 people will get served in the amount of time it takes me to get one haircut. Couldn't take it anymore. It was, it was too many years of my life where I was watching the calendar change as I was getting a haircut. So finally, I didn't want to go to another barbershop. I wanted to stay at that one. One day, I like had to psych myself up. I walked up to the door. I said, you're not going to him today. And that's it. And I walked in. And I sat down and he was ready. His chair was oh, open. Oh, no. And I said, no, I'm okay. Oh, no. And then the other guy, one of, there's a lot of different barbers in this place. It was horribly uncomfortable. Oh. It was and so you waited. You had to wait the, while he was there clearly free. So then the other guy, but listen to, listen to what happened though. Oh. So this had, I've been going to this guy for, for years. Um, the other guy, his chair opened up I, and I said, yeah, I'm ready. And he kind of looked, oh, like he was surprised. Gives me the haircut, less than 10, 10 minutes, same exact haircut. And you know what he, he, he said to me? He whispered to me uh, when he finished up. He goes, see, same haircut, half the time. Like he knew. Like what? he knew. Oh, man. What a Judas he is, by the way. Yeah, betraying right? You with a, betraying his friend with a whisper. Now, there is Ugh. one other detail that may make you feel not as sympathetic to the barber that I broke up with. Oh, God. JJ, he used, to, he used to always ask me if my parents were still together. Because when I was younger, my mom would bring me in for my haircuts. I couldn't drive. I think he had a thing for my mom. And so one day I'm sitting there in the chair and he says, hey, uh, your mom and dad still together? 
I said, yes, what kind of question is that? Did you say what kind of question? I looked at him, I said, yeah, they're together. I said it like that. I said, why? He said, no, I was just, just wondering. I haven't seen your dad in a while. I said, all right, maybe he's going somewhere else. I don't know. And oh, he I, asked me, and then I came back again when I was in college, and he asked me again. I said, I, I said he's holding man, a, they're together. He, he's holding a torch for your mother. I actually yes. respect it. I, I respect, respect it. that he's trying to break up my parents with, with me sitting in the chair. He's not. He's not. He's just waiting for the window to, to be open, and he will be round your house, your mom's house, with a big bunch of flowers and some chocolates. Isn't he's that like, a weird question to ask the, the kid of parents? Oh, oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so uh, you, you playing ball? How's ball going? You good? You starting on the team? Is your parents still together? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it odd. It almost would have been more normal if it was a, a question among a stream of questions, but it was like silence, silence, silence. So, parents still together? Yeah. <laughs> silence, silence, silence. Like, that. <laughs> who does that? Very, I, very weird. I, I'll tell you, if you had answered yes, the next question would be, yeah. You got your mom's number handy, A hundred percent. Yep. 100%, yes. Wow. At any rate, well, I wish you luck in, in however this breakup is going to go. I think you're making more of it than needs to be. I think the answer is you just go somewhere else and that's it. But for some reason, you feel like you need to write a speech. You need to go in there and make a scene. So whatever, I'll leave you to whatever, whatever it is you think is necessary to, to sleep well at night. Are we ready for some soccer here, JJ? Let's do it. Come on. So uh, I want to take a look at some of the chaos of what occurred between Brighton and West Brom. It wasn't, well, actually, it wasn't a great game, but it had moments that were hard to kind of take your eyes off the screen. It was a controversial, it was a controversial game, but it was Grant, Grant Wall was upset that people were, uh, it was trending harder than the Barcelona Sevilla game. And I was like, Grant, did you see the things that happened in this game? That's why it's trending. Yeah. Uh, by now I'm sure everyone knows about what went on with, uh, with Lee Mason and his refereeing decisions. Um, I don't it want, was, it was hard to watch. It was terrible, and, and, and it, it was one of those unique moments. We've all seen people in a fluster. You know what a fluster is? It's a particular type of embarrassment where confusion uh, and panic mm -hmm. seeps into you. In our business, you see it. Sometimes you see it on air, but usually you see it with producers running around crazily, just losing their minds. And this is what happened to Lee Mason. The pressure got too much. Um, there's lots of people who are, who are probably right saying he's not everybody's favorite referee. There, I mean, I, I've, seen, I've seen lots of people, people I respect tweet about. I mean, who is, who is everybody's favorite referee? Right now. No but one likes just, any of them. I don't want to go into that. I, 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 just wanna, I agree. I just want to deal with what happened because I, do, there's a, I have a certain amount of sympathy for the guy. Um, and, and I have a huge amount of sympathy for Graham Potter too. I would like to make this caveat before, beforehand, just for, for those people out there that, that think otherwise. If Brighton go down, it will not be because of this one decision. It, it, it will not be like the ball going into the net against, uh, for Aston Villa and Sheffield United last year that really did help keep Villa up. It will not be like Carlos Tevez in 2006-2007. It will be because, be because Brighton can't finish their chances. Cannot do it. Can't put games away. We'll talk more about that when we get into the full relegation breakdown. Right. With regards to this incident specifically, my read on it was, was pretty simple. He blew his whistle, instantly, instantly realized, uh-oh, I yeah. shouldn't have done that, tried to take it back, and then he kind of just mentally broke, and he just convinced himself yeah. that, he, that he blew it, 
Uh, he gives the goal and then like, not like an epiphany, but then he was kind of like, well, I do have VAR to help me here. So then he went over to the screen and it, it was just, the whole situation was just hard to watch. He's being swarmed by Brighton players. He's being swarmed by West Brom players. Um, Dermot Gallagher at Sky, who we reference often, the former referee, uh, he said, um, he asks the referee if he can go. Yeah. Uh, or, or Lewis Dunk, basically. Dermot's read on it was, Dunk asks the referee, Mason, if he can go and take the kick. I think the referee has lost a little bit of focus and says yes. He's not in the right position for the free kick himself because he's just stepping back. Dunk shoots, and I think as soon as he shoots, I think Lee thinks – I shouldn't have had this free kick taken and he blows yep. his whistle again to stop it. But the consequence is that the ball goes in the net. Also, and, but, but, but the, yeah. that, that whistle before it crosses the line, it completely invalidates it. There's no coming back. Then the play is dead. The minute that whistle goes the second, the before it crosses the line. Um, but, but again, he should have just gone with what had, had, had happened. Sam Johnston, I don't think would have, would have complained too much. He was scrambling to get there. This exact same incident happened last season against Adrian at Anfield where they just – quick free kick. Uh, Adrian wasn't ready. The ball gets – by Lewis Dunk gets kicked into the net. He should have just let it go, uh, but he didn't. And, and, um, and again, it's, it's Brighton finding a way Let, – let's not forget, Brighton missed two penalties in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some weird, weird decisions – I saw Adam Crafton tweet about this decision to allow um, the centre forward, who was now, I've just blanked on his name, for Brighton to take the penalty. Um, it was the one that hit the post. And, um, Danny Welbeck? Yeah, excuse me. Danny Welbeck. Welbs. And I'm like, yeah, Welbeck. I, I just, why would you? Has he taken a penalty before for them? I just, I just thought it was weird. Now, look, professional footballer, striker, he should roll at home from, from 12 yards. I get that. Um, and now they've sucked themselves into this mess again. When we thought, I think we thought for a while Brighton were going to pull clear comfortably. Um, but their inability to, like, score and shut down games is, is just so jarring. Well, should we go more now yeah, into let's, the, the relegation picture? Let's because do like that said, because Brighton, they're in it now. Yeah. You know, and I don't think we thought that was going to be the case with the way that they've played throughout the course of the season. So here's how it looks. 15, 16, 17 goes Burnley, Brighton, Newcastle. Burnley on 28 points, Brighton and Newcastle on 26. Then you get your drop down to 18 where it's Fulham, uh, just three points back of Brighton and Newcastle. Uh, then West Brom and Sheffield United, I, I almost – Sheffield United especially, I don't even really consider them a part of this. I think it's – I think West Brom and Sheffield are, are, are most likely going down. Fulham still yeah. have hope. That's my read on it. Yeah. But uh, now there's, there's news this morning that is – I mean, for Newcastle United fans, things just get worse. They blew the opportunity to beat uh, Wolves at home at the weekend, which would have given them some, some real breathing space. Um, Miguel Almiron, knee ligament damage. Alan Samaximin, groin tear. They're both out for six weeks. At least. At least. That is such a blow. And if you watch Newcastle, you said they'll have enough to stay up if they can get these guys on the ball. Because in that first half, they did some pretty, pretty, you know, 
they did all the attacking for Newcastle and they're two quality players. Luke Edwards says, to underline how significant this blow is, I'm told this morning all Newcastle United takeover conversations have been halted by Justin Barnes and the club is effectively no longer for sale. Everything paused until the relegation matter is decided because obviously who wants to buy a club that's about to go through the trap door? Right, kind of a depreciating asset. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing about, first with Almiron, you know, he's, he's really emerged as such a key player for them. And I saw John Joe Shelby talking about him. Uh, he said, the one thing Miggy brings to our team is work rate. He sets us going on that press. And the way we want to play at the minute is with a high press. You know, Almiron is at the center. He, his, you know, Shelby went on to talk about how much he runs. Like you can look at the statistics of, of Almiron's running throughout the course of a game. He never stops. It's unbelievable energy that he brings. Uh, and they are sorely going to miss that. And the other thing too, in terms of their injuries, Almiron sent Maximen, but this is with Callum Wilson, who's been really their primary goal scorer this season with him already out and not expected back for at least a few more weeks. Um, probably into at least early to mid-April. So, like, where are the goals going to come from? It's sort of the problem that they dealt with last season before they brought Callum Wilson in. Who is going to score goals for this team, a team that already struggles in that department? So they, it's, it's worrisome. They've got West Brom up next, which is just such a huge game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, like you said, effectively, if West Brom don't win this, it's very hard to see how they can pull themselves back into, into any kind of contention for, for safety. Especially to bat- West Brom with a minus 35 goal differential, the worst yeah. in the league by a, yeah. by a wide margin. And so many of those coming since Big Sam uh, was, yeah. put into, was put in charge, which is worth noticing. He was the guy who's supposed to come in and plug the leaks. Um, Fulham, I just wanted to talk about that result, that draw with Palace at the weekend, because there was a few people afterwards who were saying, okay, look, it's not, it's not perfect but it's a point. It, it's one point further towards getting back into some kind of contention to stay up. But, you know, Palace didn't even have a shot on target in that game. Um, Fulham had so many chances, or I felt like they did anyway. Um, and they're playing actually well. And now, Andrew, they go into, in a relegation battle, if you're a manager, you're looking at games and you're thinking, must win, must win. Anything is a bonus here. And they've got Tottenham and Liverpool up next in the next few days in, 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 the, in the coming days actually and so you like, let's be realistic maybe, maybe they can get, pull something out of the fire at Anfield other teams have maybe Tottenham revert to what they have been before the Burnley game but, but like that is zero points really if we're being honest and it was just such a missed opportunity at the weekend for Fulham um, who like I said are actually playing well if, if Fulham go down they'll have gone down playing good football yeah, and with that as a transition, I want to go back and shine a little bit of a brighter light on Brighton because you talk about if Fulham go down, they'll go down playing good football. Yeah. What's to be said then about Brighton? Oh, my this God. Season, now, look, finishing is obviously like all of the good football that you want to play can be undone by the fact that you're with an inability to finish. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the game. What do we say all the time? The game is about goals. Um, but it, it's worth at least noting some of the statistics behind this with regards to Brighton. Um, I saw XG Philosophy, the Twitter account that you love, mm. JJ, uh, tweeted, Brighton, have, they've scored one goal from 7.79 XG in their last three matches. Ugh. It's incomprehensible <laughs> to have a, a total goal of one and an XG that high. Um, 
Brighton's XG goal differential for the season, they are plus 11.4. Now, let me put that in perspective. Here's what the teams around them are. Burnley is minus 15. Newcastle is minus 12. Fulham is minus 5. West Brom is minus 27. Sheffield United is minus 15.6. And like I said, Brighton is plus 11.4. And putting that in further perspective, Manchester United is second in the table and has scored more goals than anyone in the league. Their XG differential is plus 10.7. Brighton have a better XG difference than the number two team in the league in Manchester United. So, I mean, my gut instinct is to look at those numbers and say that it would just be a terrible injustice if they are to go down because they've played – they've played to a level that they should most likely be doing better than they are. But like we said, you're, they've missed three penalties this season. No one in the league has missed more. Two came this, the past, this past weekend when they lost by a goal. Um, and they missed another one earlier in the season. Fulham have also missed three penalties. It's worth mentioning. And Manchester City have as well, which is odd. Um, so I, I guess to a certain extent, you can only blame yourself when you do all the hard work, but then can't put in the finishing touches that would put you over the top. I've watched a lot of them this season and there's so many players that they have that I really like. Pazuma, Trossard, McAllister, Alexis McAllister, who was like shunned by the previous regime and even by Graham Potter last season has been brought back in to be a crucial player. Neil Mope. I I love Aaron Connolly, but Aaron Connolly, like for a young player, shows all this potential, couldn't hit a barn door right now, really struggling Mm -hmm. to the point where he was getting abuse on social media from, from gambling, people who had gambled on, on Brighton. Um, and he had to shut his, his Twitter account down, which obviously is totally reprehensible. But I like this team so much, but you find yourself rooting for them in games, but you get invested and you're so frustrated. I can only imagine what it's like to be a Brighton fan watching this site. Yeah, this has been rough. To put uh, kind of the finishing touches on this, and specifically with Brighton, I mean, to go back to the the Lee Mason situation from over the weekend, I did want to ask you, have you ever, like the, the feeling of loneliness that a referee must feel in a moment like that when he knows, like it, it's one thing for a player to feel lonely after missing a penalty. Yeah. But like if you're a referee who blows a call in that way, you now know like, okay, both teams are mad at you. All the fans are laughing at you. You already know what the headlines are going to be. Like, you can just feel the world kind of coming down on you. Obviously, you and I won't have anything to that level. Can you, can you think of a moment of extreme loneliness like that for J.J. Devaney? When I felt that low and alone? Yeah. Wow. I'd... I'm sure we all have those moments, but it's just his is in the public public sphere so I much so I, I can't think anything comprehensible to it I really can't I've, I've never had this happen to me but I I've been in rooms like when someone farts in class that's a lonely feeling for that person <laughs> I did have one moment you, you mentioned before about producers running around a room in, in, in a panic so there was one summer when I was uh, still in college at Syracuse, there was a summer I lived in Syracuse and I got a job as like a producer board operator for the Syracuse Sky Chiefs, uh, who were the minor league baseball team there. And so I went through whatever, whatever the training process was, it was kind of a joke. Clearly, I'm not trying to put this on anyone else, but like they clearly didn't feel like giving, like no one wanted to do it. So they're like, here, you just be in charge of this now was how it kind of felt. And so my first day, 
I kind of like mentally broke and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to get the radio station that the game was on from like the music that was playing. Now the game's going to start at seven o'clock. Now I need to switch like the programming over to like live local uh, programming for the baseball game. And I couldn't figure out how to do it. Oh no. And it took four innings. There was no one there. There was one other guy. We sh- it shared, a- there were two radio stations in one building and there was a classic rock station in, in like the room next door. And so it's like the, the, the play-by-play announcer is screaming at me down the line, what is going on? The game has started. I run into the other room as this guy is basically on the air DJing on a classic rock station. I say, can you help me? And he's like, no, uh, I don't know. What, what do you do? Who even are you? Oh, God. So it's the fourth inning. Finally, like my boss comes in from home to like fix the situation and get us on the air. That fe- those four innings – the loneliness that I was feeling and just the sheer panic, <laughs> it's not a good place to be. No, and, and, and the, the panic, I, 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 can, I can sense your panic and I could sense Lee Mason's panic. I, I just thought of one thing. Um, it was our first game back in senior championship uh, with my club uh, in, in decades and I'd started the game and I t- it was the game I tore my cruciate in after about 25 oh. minutes. And I remember coming off in that game, like the first time back in senior championship and my first senior championship game, that was pretty lonely. Being on the sideline and just the game going on. And, and I felt like I was playing well. I was enjoying it. And then for just all to be stopped. Uh, yeah, that was brutal. That's brutal, but that's a different kind of loneliness. That's, not, a, that's not an embarrassment loneliness. No. That's just, that's a different, that's more of a depressing loneliness. Yeah. Sad. Speaking of people who've been lonely in the past are lonely figures in the stands, falling asleep, mocking, uh, kind of this, this figure of almost, I won't say ridicule, but, but people just making fun of the fact he probably preferred golf than the sport he's actually in. Oh, Bale. You're talking about Bale. I yeah, he made, he made a comeback. He was unbelievable over the weekend. He really play, it, was, it was certainly his best game so far for Tottenham. Um, and I know people will kind of roll their eyes at that because he hasn't had many. He hasn't had many in the league. He, in, his, in his cameo appearances in the, in the Europa League, he has played well. Um, but this was, this was sort of the bail that I think Tottenham thought that they were going to be getting. Now, Andrew, that- Andrew can, I, can I quickly ask you, on the bail backometer, which is a, a very technical device, it's like a Geiger counter, um, where are you on the, on the, on the bail is back? Between well, what it operates between one and ten. Ten being the most bail, your top bun is flowing, and uh, one being um, on the golf course. Well, obviously, it's not one and it's not ten. Uh, I mean, for me, it's probably uh, I would say I'm at a seven. Okay, I think which is reasonable. The pro- the frustrating thing in watching him is that you're in this constant state of fear of injury. Like, like he's made of glass. Well, that, that's sort of like every time he goes on like a lung busting run, you're kind of just like, you're enjoying it and, and you're loving it, but you're also like hoping he doesn't pull up at some point. Like he, I need to watch him, I think for a couple games before I kind of like feel comfortable because unfortunately that's just such a part of his recent career history. And the I thi- think it's, I think it's why it's taken him longer than maybe we thought. Like, remember when Tottenham got him, he was already hurt. And Tottenham decided to kind of move forward with the loan anyway. So I think it is like Jose Mourinho spoke afterwards and he's, you know, he, he was kind of saying, he said it in like a joking sort of way, but like, you know, it's not that I, it's not that I dislike Bale, but I can't play him if he's not fit. Uh, he, you know, he said no manager would, would sit a healthy Gareth Bale. And so maybe this is like finally 
Mourinho, the, the Tottenham training staff, finally believes that this guy is ready to go consistently. And if he is, he's, you know, he is a difference maker. I think we saw that you know, over, over the weekend. So uh, it's, it's a huge lift. I have a different take on that question. I think a better question is Bale back in a side that will play to his strengths. And I thought to give Tottenham their due from the weekend, just to talk about the game, look, Burnley weren't great. They were porous. They, were, they did the things you wouldn't expect or you wouldn't, I say expect, you wouldn't want from a Sean Dyche team. He certainly wouldn't want it. But I thought Spurs played in a way we haven't seen them play. As, uh, as someone tweeted, and I can't remember who it was, so apologies, but he said he's let the handbrake off. So you saw Spurs, like say, for example, the move for, the, for Bale's goal where he curls it in off the post. Was that the fourth or the third goal? The fourth. The fourth goal. The move for the fourth goal. When is the last time you've seen Tottenham put together a flowing move like that down the left-hand side, across the field to an open Bale who, who, who opens out his body, side foot's home? You haven't. I mean, it, it, it was them earlier in the season. That's how they were scoring goals against United, Southampton, that stretch of games when they were just I, I, I would brutal, dis- when they were killing teams on the counterattack. I, it looked I, like that. Yeah, but this was, a, this was as much as this was a, this was a build-up move, Andrew. It wasn't suddenly, uh-oh. Like, it was suddenly, uh-oh, in the yeah. sense that Burnley were opened up, but it was a good passing, flowing move. There looked like there was patterns of play put together in that one, you know? And I haven't seen that from Spurs. So for me, for Bale to, to continue to flourish, two things have to happen. He has to stay fit. Mm-hmm. obviously. And the second thing is that Spurs actually do have, like, think of the Spurs-Brighton game, which was probably one of the most horrifying performances Spurs have put in in, in a long time at Brighton. Um, there, was, there, was no, uh, there was no system to get the ball to Gareth Bale in that game. And I saw a system to do that against Burnley. So that has to continue. Well, and he made himself part of the game too, not just with the goals that he scored, but you know, his pass to Harry Kane, you know, what was it, like, a, like a 50-yard dropped in on a dime to Kane. That was a beautiful, beautiful ball, yeah, yeah. He really, you know, they, it's, it's what was envisioned with the, when, when he was loaned to Spurs, this idea but, of Son, Kane, and Bale up front and that you know, three-headed monster. And they're playing Lucas Mora yeah. in that game. And those but, but four attackers. What it, does that tell you? What does that tell you about the whole mindset? That, that, was, that was different at the weekend. If I'm a Spurs fan, I'm not getting carried away because you just don't know with this manager. The first game that he perceives to be too much, he will revert to type. But um, what, what, was it partly because Burnley weren't great? Yeah, yes, partly. Yeah. But, but I saw enough from Spurs. Uh, along those lines about Tottenham and you know, what we've seen from them, Roy Keane not went in on them. but well, Went he, in on Jamie he, Redknapp. He did. So I'm going to play a clip for you from Sky Sports over the weekend, but Roy Keane was basically talking about just how ordinary this Tottenham team is. Now he does give the caveat that Kane and Son are different. And Reggion. Eventually he he said Reggion, but not at first. I think he had to be almost prodded into that. But he's basically saying that no one aside from Kane's son and maybe Reggion could get into the top team's in England and Jamie Redknapp was he was not having that here was his response to Roy Keane I don't think it's an average team no or an average squad it's full of internationals I think there's a lot of quality in this team I don't think they're playing to their maximum I'm not sure what I agree with Graham there with Josie doesn't know his best team but if you look at that back four you know Dyer doesn't play today he plays for England Sanchez Colombia Aldevero plays for the number one team in the world that doesn't make you a good player 
That Sorry? Playing for your country doesn't make you a, no, a, no, a well, top player. If, if you can trap the ball, know, you will play for your country these days. Whatever. Doesn't make you a top player because you're well, international. I don't know about that, but I think you're talking about... But I'm talking about this Dyer, squad, Dyer, Dyer's I think they've got better players than you're giving them credit Dyer's for. Dyer's been giving goals away every week. Yeah. Last week he gave yeah, the ball away. Yeah, he probably away. has. He's been chopping and changing. Yeah, I agree with that. But he's been chopping and changing, playing with a different player every week. That doesn't help. I don't mean that Jose knows his best team. But I don't think you can turn around and say this isn't a strong squad. It's full of internationals. There's internationals in every department. But being department. an international doesn't he make you a good team. Right backs. Don't, Jamie, still good players. Well, they play for good countries, though, Roy. They play, yeah. What you're saying, these aren't good players, then. You said Alderweireld plays plays for Belgium. He's not a good player. He's not bad. Yeah, would he get none of the top teams? It's interesting. Now, can, can I first, can I first uh, say a couple of things? Sure. None of, none of, a lot of what Roy Keane is saying is just not true. Like, Dyer is not a good player, but Dyer's not a centre-back. I mean, I've always had, I don't like Dyer as a centre mid or a centre back, but he, to be fair to him, he definitely isn't a centre back. But Tottenham have absolute quality in that team. They, and that is the part of the, that is the frustrating thing. Um, don't, you can't tell me that Hoiberg isn't quality. You cannot tell me like Son, Kane, uh, Lucas Mora, Reggion. Well, I, I made my, it's not that he's saying about quality. He's saying, would these players get into the top teams? Yes. So I, I have, I don't know. I made my list of who I think. So I say Kane and Son get into any team, any team. Um, Alderweireld, I think, gets into Manchester United. I think if he was one of their center backs, he'd be playing for them every single week. Right. Uh, I think a player who hasn't been mentioned, I've said this for a while now, maybe this is like irrational love by me. I love Tangy and Dombele. Uh, I think he gets a shot at playing on every side except Manchester City. Uh, but I think any other team, you know, in the top five, six, I think he, he could play for. Uh, and then Sergio Reguilón, I think, gets in on almost every single team at left back with, you know, even for Manchester City. I would t- I'd probably take him over Zinchenko. Uh, Chelsea, I think I would take him over Chilwell or Marcus Alonso. Right. Um, Luke Shaw at United. Luke Shaw, I- I've been talking about how well Luke Shaw has played the season. So that one I would say is tough to say. Uh, and I don't know that uh, Reguilón would get in for you guys at Liverpool with Robertson. Yeah, but they, I mean, Liverpool have established fullbacks. But, I, but to me, those are the guys. I don't. Hoybier is, is the one who's on the line for me. But this isn't a good way of, of assessing players anyway, because Liverpool have established fullbacks. You know, there's at United, you can say definitely there's a need for an experienced centre back. Alvarez is probably just a bit too old now to go in and, and do that. But he was a player United wanted. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I, I. I this isn't about if Tottenham, Tottenham's players are actually top quality and can get into teams or not. You know, this is about Roy Keane's long-standing contempt for the career and opinions of Jamie Redknapp and settling a score with Matt Doherty. He goes on later to fixate on Doherty. And there are reasons why. Let me tell you. First of all, this is from Roy Keane's book. This is about Jamie Redknapp. So this isn't the first time he has <laughs> gone after Jamie Redknapp about a player, except in this case, in the book, the player was Jamie Redknapp. So they're, out, they're on a night out, the Liverpool players and the Manchester United players, and they meet in a club, and Roy Keane has had a few beers. And he starts attacking John Scales, who's the Liverpool centre-back. Jamie Redknapp came over with his London patter and twinkling eyes, trying to smooth things over. This is Keane. You, Redknapp, are you happy with your under-21 caps? Keane spluttered. What the hell have you done in the game? And on it went. All of which I thought was pretty funny. Lee Sharp cheerfully remembers. Roy was a great lad, a great mate. He loved to laugh and to go out, but he had this blackness inside him. I never understood it, and it came out when he drank. That is, this is, you must 
always when you when you think Roy Keane is what's he talking about? Why is he getting so upset about these things? When you when you when you see that, you must think, what grudge is he holding on to? Matt Doherty, he brings up, destroys Matt Doherty. Who thought Matt Doherty was a bad signing at the start of the season? Nobody. Nobody thought he was a bad signing. He was a good signing, and he gave the team depth, and he'd come off two, three, almost top seasons at Wolves in the Premier League. So he wasn't a bad signing. But Matt Doherty fell foul of Roy Keane and Martin O'Neill when they were at Ireland. That's the other part of it. Look at Keane's Instagram. Randomly, last week, he has a picture of him with the Irish team from the US Cup in Boston in 1992, out on a night out drinking. And he writes underneath it, no special treatment here. And then the snake emoji. Why? Why is he doing this? I'll tell you why. Niall Quinn, in a documentary that got released, uh, excerpts got released in the paper, said that Roy Keane got special treatment for Ireland. So straight away, Roy is replying on the attack. There's a line from Morrissey, the great singer-songwriter, Andrew, where he said, beware I hold more grudges than lonely high court judges. Roy Keane. Interesting. This is Red, he looks at someone like Jamie Redknapp and just thinks, I'm going to wind him up. How can I get into him? I can't tackle him anymore. I can't meet him in a nightclub because he's my colleague and verbally abuse him about his career. I'm going to do it here. Um, yeah, and the Matt Doherty thing is interesting too. From He's been know, bad. Yeah. Um, Doherty, by the way, I've talked about this with Richarlison. Um, this is unrelated. Uh, he's, he's another one of these angry demeanor guys. Every time I look at Matt Doherty, he's, he's angry. He's frowning. He has like, like somebody's drawn in angry eyebrows. His first co- let me tell you a story about his first cousins who are friends of mine. And I, lo- I, like, I love them. I love both of them. Um, uh, I played football with uh, Matt's first cousin, Anthony. And Anthony had that angry demeanor on the field. Like he's not actually angry, but he's dead serious. And I remember a game we were playing... Um, and he's looking for a one-two off me. So he gives me the ball and he's steaming forward. And I am going to give him the ball. He screamed at me so loudly, loudly, give it! Like, that I almost messed the pass up. I was always going to make it. But because he roared at me, I, I, it, was like a, it was like a Viking. <laughs> so, um, so that on-field demeanor runs in the family. I hope I'm not betraying confidences here, but I think it does anyway. Uh, finally, a couple other things before we get out of the Premier League discussion. Not a ton came from what was supposed to be the match of the weekend with Chelsea and Manchester United. Um, I saw it today. Uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a rough watch. One moment of, I guess, controversy, the Hudson-Odoi incident. I, yeah. I was generally fine with how that played out, and I, I really don't have much to say about it. I don't know if you do. I, all I have to say is um, we shouldn't be handing out penalties for incidents like that. But having said that, in the microbial world of VAR and penalties we've seen given before, it's absolutely a penalty. So f- find out which side you're on in, in that debate. All right. I don't know what to do with any of that. It's a penalty. Um, it's a penalty by, by, the, by the VAR world we are now plunged into, but we shouldn't be given penalties for something as innocuous and just not – it's not a penalty. But it but, also is a penalty. So then that would <laughs> – okay, whatever. Um, one thing, Christian Pulisic did get some minutes near the end of this, which is important. Um, it's important got, for the men. He can only, like, he has to, clearly he's not going to be given 
the opportunity to play. He's going to have to earn it. So he can only do that with minutes on the field. But yeah, and, and again, I, we're not going to go over old ground here. I got an email from uh, Robert Vimmer, who is a, a U.S. men's national team fan who is worried about his minutes. He doesn't understand why he's not getting more minutes. I'm assuming that he missed the game for personal reasons. Then he missed out on a squad entirely because of a calf injury. Then he got gradual minutes against Atleti, and now he's got more minutes against Manchester United. And I am just going on the fact that he's been eased back in by Tuchel. That's all I can go on because you know my views. I think he's good enough to start. I think he should be starting in this team. And I don't think it's some kind of weird conspiracy against Americans that he isn't. No, playing. no, no. And I don't think – I think American fans have eased up on that. I don't think people have they really? Believe, mm. Yes, they have. They have. I'm not speaking not for so, everyone, but they, there's no nah, conspiracy. No one thinks so, there's – come on. Not so sure about that. But, but look, I think it's fair to be an American fan who's worried. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but I just think um, if there was an injury, Andrew, if that injury did happen at, that, at this point, it surely makes sense that he's eased back in with gradually more minutes. You know, the unfortunate thing is, so going back to last season and the restart and how great of a player Pulisic was finally showing everyone that he, that he is and what he's capable of doing and, you know, scoring the goal in the FA Cup and then the hamstring injury in that game. And I just wonder, you know, if that, like, is he still kind of dealing with that? Like, if that sort of, like, just set him down the wrong course in terms of injuries? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, we don't have his medical records. We know he had calf trouble towards the end of his time at Dortmund. Um, I, I honestly don't know. But um, there was a one – I did not properly watch this Chelsea-Man United game. It just was so boring so early that it's one of those where you're flicking at your phone a lot. You're looking up. You're flicking back at your phone. Um, but there was a lovely moment when Pulisic came on where he absolutely rinsed Maguire and was duly hacked to the ground for it. So like, I, I don't know what's going on with his injuries, but I, I do think we should be just patient. Give it a little, give Tuchel a little bit longer. Um, the, the one worrying thing I, I found, so I did, I did a little bit of a deep dive on this, and I wanted to hear Tuchel talk about Pulisic and what he liked when he gave him his debut back in 2015. Um, and so I found a comment from, from Tuchel and he basically says, one of the great things about Christian is he's come in and he's never injured. And I'm like, the kid's 17 or 18 or whatever he was at the time. You would hope he wouldn't be injury, injured. And maybe, you know, that was just such an odd comment to me from Tuchel. He's never injured. He's always available. That's worrisome that that, that would be one of the things that he would actually list as a, as a positive because that means that... Now that's not the case, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm if sorry I did that deep dive. No, I think I think it shines a light on the fact that there's. I think it's if you're you're justified in being concerned if you're an American fan. Sure, sure. So I, he's got a. He's getting these cameo appearances, and he has to make the most of them. Speaking of injuries, finally, Leicester City JJ they uh, went up one nil against Arsenal early, and then it kind of fell apart for them, and and. The injuries are beginning to mount. Um, Harvey Barnes, Jamie Vardy dealing with a knock. Uh, it's, Johnny Evans. Yeah, this is this is. You know, we talked last season about the fall off in form for them coinciding with when a lot of the injuries were starting to really take hold of that club. And I wonder if we're just if we're going to be seeing that story repeat itself. Definitely, and um, you know, I want to give Arsenal a bit of credit. I thought they they did something that that was 
I mean, it was good to see the, the goals that they scored. You know, they were clinical. There were some really nice moves in it. Um, I think one of the major things about Leicester now is that, like we said before, it's depth, Andrew, and the fall-off. They didn't even have Iosi Perez to come into the game. So their reserve striker wasn't fit. And it was Chengi Zunder came, came on, who to me is not, he's not going to do the job for you there. Harry Barnes now, we believe, I think he has to have surgery. Um, on his knee so yeah it's it's kind of falling apart and I feel bad for Leicester because I don't think they I, it's not it's not all their fault it, it's really just uh, it's this season man they've there's a lot of miles on the clock and we're beginning to see these these injuries really pile up for more, for lots of clubs not just Liverpool yeah um, lots of midweek action so obviously stories in the Premier League will continue to unfold as as the week progresses into the weekend I know Man City and Wolves are in action later today so uh yeah, always, always reasons to be watching, to be listening. It all continues to develop. I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break, JG. When we come back, there's some other stories from around the globe that we want to get to. Barcelona, a couple things U.S. soccer-wise, a nice mailbag, Pele documentary. Still lots to do. Don't go anywhere. Dished off by Elish. It's Messi. Magic! Through the defense. Messi, ah! but he can't get over Bono. Instead, he goes through him. With the collider score by, does it his way? Stupefyingly magnificent again. He's handing out chocolates to the defenders as he goes by. Oh, back now, kaleidoscope eyes, JJ. Oh, not just not just a Ray Hudson line, but also a Panic at the Disco song. So good to hear from Ray and Panic at the Disco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was Messi in action over the weekend, scoring again. Uh, another kind of classic messy performance. Um, so I wanted to at least start with the positive, which was Barcelona winning that and kind of now working their way back into the title picture. They're second right now in the table in La Liga. Um, still obviously behind Atletico Madrid, who have had a stranglehold on this league for pretty much the entirety of the season. Five points is the gap between Atletico, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. Um, but Atletico Madrid do have a game at hand over both Barca yeah. and Real Madrid. So it's still certainly their league to lose, but th- the gap is, has tightened a little bit. So we'll, we'll continue to watch that. But really the story from Barcelona over the last 24, 48 hours has been their, their year of dysfunction continuing. Police raids of the club offices resulted in the arrest of Josep Maria Bartomeu, uh, the former president of the club, his advisor, uh, Halme Masferrer, the club CEO, Oscar Grau, and the head of legal services, Roman Gomez-Ponti. Um, this is in relation to the Barcagate social media scandal, which sounded terribly unethical to me, but I didn't know that it was illegal. Now, when you look into this, uh, the Barcagate situation, which for those who don't remember, remember, JJ, this was the... Uh, Barcelona had reportedly employed I3 Ventures to post things on social media that were, I guess, kind of blasphemous of club icons, Messi, Gerard Piquet, Xavi, uh, Pep Guardiola, and others. And so this company was being used as a way of trying to tear down some of these figures and prop up Bartomeu. It was, it's so petty. um, And, you know, it just sounds so wrong. It's... Yeah. Now, when you look into this, um, you know, I was saying to you yesterday when this came out that that sounds unethical, but I didn't know it was illegal. Well, it's actually not illegal. And it's not the reason that these guys are no. being hauled into jail. 
Um, it's the, the financial component of how I3 Ventures were being paid is what has been called into question. Yeah, it, it's the movement of money around the contracts that is the source of the investigation rather than the attack. Sam Marsden and Moises Lorenz reported for ESPN FC this morning. So, yeah, because, you know, as, as unethical and as, like you said, like this kind of, the stuff you, you believe goes on in, in, in political parties and, uh, you know, that, that's not great, but it didn't seem to me to be actionable from a criminal standpoint. Right. Obviously, it's the movement of the money uh, around these contracts that is, that is the reason that uh, Bartomeu et al. were arrested. Yeah, uh, they were reportedly paying I3 Ventures in installments of just under 200,000 euros to ensure that the payments would remain hidden from other executives. This is from The Mirror. Uh, they wrote, Spanish radio outlet La Cadena Ser claims the arrests have been made on suspicion of, quote, unfair administration, corruption between individuals, and money laundering by paying money in installments to avoid financial controls. Uh, Can I ask you a question, JJ? Go on. With regards to Barcelona. Yeah. Have you ever seen an organization just as seemingly successful as that of a Barcelona be this riddled with problems behind the scenes? Like between Bartomeu and this scandal and then like the club's success and star power of Messi and Neymar in the past and like uh, this Mediterranean party setting of Barcelona. Can you think of a better 10-part Netflix show than one based on like the last 10 years of Barcelona's existence. It would oh, be fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I do think this is more common in football clubs, which seem serene on the outside and can be successful for a while and then go into collapses. Like Leeds United, you yeah. know, from Champions League semifinal to League One within like how many years? Four, five years? That's, that's pretty spectacular. I do think... Uh, football clubs by their very nature are more prone to, to this kind of collapse. Um, also, I, I, w- I would say uh, financial institutions too, as we saw in 2008, things, uh, things that you think are pretty solid and are going okay, secretly behind the scenes are not in good order. That is very true. But like, there's something, but I'm talking about from a Netflix 10-part series oh, okay, watchability okay. standpoint. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Something about the glamour of Barcelona combined with all of this stuff behind the scenes. Like, who's not watching that? I feel like we got to get on this. We got to yeah, make I, this happen. I think so, too. I think that that's more interesting than the uh, all-or-nothing Juventus that's about to be foisted on us. <laughs> you just, you hate, you don't want to be entertained. You want to go into these things with a bad attitude. Like, no, why, I want what... Why would all-or-nothing Juventus not be interesting? I don't understand. I, 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 I I said I prefer to watch your version, your, which you're clearly excited about. You've gone all Ron Howard on me over there. Uh, you want to do the 10-part Barcelona, uh, which, by the way, will be much more interesting than, than any of that uh, at Juventus. Uh, let's see, a couple of U.S. soccer notes, JJ. The U.S. women, like we, uh, we talked about last week, they took care of business, as expected, against Argentina in style. Um, they win the She Believes Cup. Props to them. It was a dominant performance. Rose Lavelle taking home tournament MVP honors. Uh, yeah, just that needs to be renamed the They Believes Cup because uh, I doubt there's too many teams walk into a game against the U.S. with a, a lot of She Believes going on in the ranks. Certainly not right now. This no. is honestly, I, I really think this is like as good as they've ever been, which is yeah. saying something. Uh, the U.S. men, meanwhile, just announced they're going to face Jamaica in Austria on March 25th. And then Northern Ireland, and uh, we knew about that one in Belfast a few days later. 
Um, but that could be interesting just because with those games being in Europe, you'd think maybe they'll pull in uh, some of the European players. I'm, I'm curious to see, and I, I'm pretty sure the paperwork won't get done quickly enough to have Mikel Antonio yeah. on board for Jamaica. But that is that suddenly gives them an edge and an attack that bolsters their attack in a way that, you know, we faced them twice, October and November, twice within a, within a month, a short window in World Cup qualifying and adding a player like Mikel Antonio, assuming he's fit, blah, 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 all other caveats inserted, makes Jamaica a dangerous rival for us. Definitely. Uh, and then finally, JJ, there was this from uh, U.S. Soccer's annual general meeting, uh, and it's, it's a little bit troubling. During open comments from members on the repeal of the policy that forces players to stand for the national anthem, newly elected Athletes Council member Seth Yan made some comments that were – in a word, troubling. Yeah, and I, I, I've been thinking about this, uh, batting it back and forward. I'm not going to repeat what was said in, in his diatribe because that's the only way to describe it, but it was not factually based. Uh, it cast some um, historical inaccuracies about a lot of things. It was, um, it was bizarre that, um, that somebody on the Athletes Council would hold these views and... Um, the, in fairness to the Athletes Council, they, they moved to, to remove him from it and they used the, the avenues available to them. And now Setian is no longer on the Athletes Council. And I think if you read the text of, of the things that he, were say, that he said, um, you'd have to say that that is the correct decision. Yeah. You say in fairness to the Athletes Council, I mean, I would have to do a little bit more reading up on this, but um, reportedly, like it, these kind of views from Setian were not necessarily secret. It's not like this. I didn't know of them. And it's, not, it's not like he suddenly spoke over the weekend and we were subjected to a side of him that, that hadn't been known. That's troublesome. And so how he kind of got to this position in the first place, I think deserves to come under a little bit of scrutiny. I would agree. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was baseless. Like I said, there was, there was no, no facts in it. It was deeply insulting to, any number of, of communities, um, prominent communities in U.S. soccer. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about it, except I'm, I mean, I'm glad that they used the protocol and the procedure necessary to remove him from the Athletes Council. Yeah, um, yeah, it was, it was a little bit troubling, uh, for sure. And I thought U.S. soccer's response was also a little bit tepid um afterwards when cindy Cohn was asked about it she they, said that she couldn't quite hear him yeah yeah that was weird to me too um well it was weird okay maybe if there was some kind of like technological breakdown where she was having a hard time hearing what he was saying but that had i think from the time that she was from from the time he made those comments to the time that she was then asked about them i think over an hour had passed you would have thought that either she would have maybe seen them like, yeah. or somebody in her camp would have kind of like prepped her and uh, made sure that she kind of like had her ducks in a row on what had occurred. It just, I don't know the whole thing. It was kind of a bad look for us soccer. I, I think it's also a reminder that they're, you know, we are, we are in a country where Setian is not alone in, in, um, in, in holding these views, however, historically false they are. And they are. He, there are lots of people, I'm afraid, that hold these views. Yeah. Uh, and then, JJ, finally, before we get to the mailbag, uh, so we did want to at least mention the Pele documentary. Like I said, I, I watched it last night. Um, I thought it was 
I thought it was very good. I really liked it. And yeah. I would suggest that people, if you're listening to this podcast, you love soccer, you should watch it. I'm going to be honest. Like Pele's greatness is kind of one of those things for me that I've always just sort of accepted. And I, ne- I haven't necessarily like investigated it on my own. And in this documentary, you're shown an abundance of Pele highlights. And like, I'm kind of taking them in and just thinking like, oh my God, this this guy's greatness was on a level that I don't even know I was ever like fully aware of just the quality of some of the goals he scored and some of the goals he didn't score. They yeah. mentioned in the documentary that he's like one of the Kings of the great, no, like the great non goals uh, with some of the things he would try. The Uruguay one where he, where he goes yeah. one side of the ball and runs around the goalkeeper. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a really fun watch. Uh, and I was blown away too, by how great he was. And like the, the quality of the goals he scored in the biggest moments, like the 1958 world cup uh, at age 17 to be scoring the kinds of goals that he was scoring in, in a world cup final. Um, yeah. You know, I, I wonder if he, for whatever superstar he is and is accepted to be, I wonder if he's almost still underrated in that, category of, I, of great superstars i think he is because you could see how quickly we had access to the greatness you know the captured greatness on video of diego maradona like f- growing up andrew i had of pele i had like the 1970 world cup really grainy footage of the 58 world cup and not a whole lot else. Well, remember, he got hurt. They won it in 62, but he got hurt, so he didn't yeah. play in the final. Right. 66 didn't go well No. for them. They went out early, and he also got hurt in that, too. He was just beaten up and down the pitch. Like that was, They talk right. about in the documentary the strategy of dealing with him was to just brutalize him. Um, but in terms of like his superstar, I mean, what he did in the 1958 World Cup at age 17, it's so ridiculous. I, I can't think of a, a comparable situation in another sport where a player at such a young age performed to that level on such an enormous platform. Uh, his combination of like talent, personality, charisma. I mean, he yeah. is just like, he was born to be this superstar athlete. Now what makes the documentary interesting is that it is, it is not just a Pele love fest. Um, they go into the political element of his life and Brazil as a country. And basically Pele's insistence on remaining politically neutral in a time where Brazil was, when a coup was staged in a dictatorship, a brutal dictatorship uh, took over the country. And Pele just like, in a time where Muhammad Ali was gaining notoriety for his willingness to speak out on issues, despite you know, being at the peak of his, his powers as an athlete and what that was going to cost him, Pele was never willing to do that. Now, I don't know. This is a conversation for like a, a much bigger show. Um, I don't know if it's incumbent on superstar athletes to have to do that. I think the players, and we're going to get into this in a sec with the mailbag and the LeBron Zlatan situation, but I think if you're an athlete who is comfortable in that arena – then I think go for it. I think it's great to use your celebrity, your fame to try to better um, a, a situation. But if you're not, if that's not you, then I'm, I kind of understand that too. I heard Tim Vickery talk about this a little bit, Andrew. And while you say it was a brutal dictatorship, it, um, and I, I'm not trying to rank the dictators, but it wasn't Pinochet and it, in Chile and it wasn't the Argentinian junta. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't it was as bad though. 
it was it was bad, but I think it had broad it had broader support. Tim again, I'm quoting Tim Vickery. Tim said that there was a, a broader support in Brazil at the time for this you know, for this military to take dictatorship to take over. And then that in itself kind of gave Pele, I don't want to say it gave him an out, but it wasn't, you know, immediately expected that he would react against it or speak out against it. I'm sure as well, there was, could there have been a fear factor, you know, speaking out in, 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 and don't forget, he, he didn't do what Messi did. He didn't ply his trade in a foreign country for most of his career. He never played in Europe apart from when he went on tour with Santos. He played in Brazil. So he was right, right under, under that military dictatorship. So, uh, and you don't know in, in which way he felt, he felt squeezed or he felt um, pushed towards um, acquiescence with that. Well, they do mention, you know, cause the comparison between Pele and Muhammad Ali comes up and, you know, like Muhammad Ali, it cost him, you know, it, it potentially could send him to jail. It cost him years during his, his prime as a boxer. Uh, but had pe- they, they say, you know, that's, that's a cost, certainly. And Ali is to be commended for it. Um, but in a dictatorship, had Pele done similarly, we don't know what the cost could have been for Pele beyond prison. I mean, they talk openly about this regime's use of, of torture, essentially, mm. as a policy of, you know, people, family members just kind of disappearing off the street. And that's that. No trial, forget it. You're, that, you're never not to be seen again. Um, so, like, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy to sit here and say what he should have done, what, you, what we want our athletes to do. But I think this guy, they talk about, he really just wanted to play. He, he loved soccer. He loved playing football. And, and, you know, the things that came with that were not necessarily – what he was about. I think but also it's worth watching and people can make their own judgments on that. Yeah. I think also as well, the poverty he came from protecting the future and making sure his family's future and his future were secure may also have had a, a factor in him not opening his mouth about what was going on around him. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's very good. So check it out. If you have Netflix, I'd recommend it. Now you, yes, JJ had a chance to actually speak with, with this man. Yep, I spoke to him in 2016. Uh, he was doing something that... I've n- the money was supposed to be going towards charities. I'm sure that's where it went, but I, I found it kind of sad because I felt upset for him. This, here was an elderly man, Pele, and he was at a, a, a media event to advertise the fact he was auctioning his World Cup medals and other memorabilia. His boots that he wore in 1970, the jersey he wore in 1970. So I got a chance to speak to him I had so many questions for him and I was utterly charmed by the man and I never got to pretty much any of them. Well, here you go. This was uh, you and Pele. Edson Orantes de Nascimento. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, you said very, very correctly, but a lot of people don't know who is Edson Arantes de Nascimento. Well, um, I grew up with the legend of Edson Arantes de Nascimento, <laughs> so um, I was just looking at some of the amazing artifacts and memorabilia from your career over there, and I'm just wondering, at 75 years of age, what do these, these things mean to you right so, now? Listen, uh, uh, before I answer your question, when I, I'm, I'm joking with you, no, very few people know Edson Arante do Nascimento because they know only Pelé. No? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's true. That is very true. Uh, uh, this is, is uh, some important thing in my life, the trophies of uh, who I got in all my career. And then um, the, 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 the opportunity 
to help other people to have uh, some uh, charity in Brazil, some house of children. Then I, I decided to do the ocean of my trophies. Um, when you look at those uh, trophies now, when you look back at your career, do you, do you get emotional? Do, do you long for those days when you were marauding on the field, when you were the greatest player in the world? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, have something who just uh, the person who, you know, who are involved in this can, 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 can feel. For example, we started to talk about you know, the, the help of the people, help my, my family with this ocean. And then uh, some directors from Santos, they start to say, oh, you have a, the trophy of a gold, you, know, you have a from Santos champion, and you have the, 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 the medal of FIFA, the former of the gold. But he doesn't mention the, 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 the box who I used to clean shoes. My, my, my father, when he used to play the Interland of Sao Paulo, my father was a soccer player. Yeah, I, I had to make some, some money, I, I used to clean the shoes from the other players. Then I have the box with the, in my, my trophy at home. This, this is so important for me. <laughs> so, so <laughs> but I, it's not no gold. No, it's, it's, so it's not about the medals. It's, it's, it's about the things, that, the, the smaller things even to you. Exactly, exactly. This, this is uh, some feeling who, who I want to, you know, to pass to the people because uh, I didn't remember you know, why my mother, she keep the, the, the box of the <laughs> Then now she said, okay, if you want to, to get together, I said, of course, this is important for me. No, this is a part of the memorabilia. Um, at 75, what memories do you have, we'll say, of 1958? You know, a lot of players, they say, um, when they finish their careers, uh, they don't remember the big games. Do you remember those moments? <laughs> well, I remember several, several <laughs> games. But actually, my, my last game, exhibition game, was in Europe, I was with 50. Wow. <laughs> that was no, not too much, too much time, time ago. It was after I played with New York Cosmos. No. But uh, I think it's important to, 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 to remember you know, all those, those moments. It's important to... The question you said was about... Uh, 58. 58. Mm. Then people sometimes... They, come talk with me about the World Cup, they say, oh, Pelé, in 58, you was young, you were 17 years old. Oh, my God, how you, you, you survived us? <laughs> then, <laughs> then I answer, listen, 58 was very important to me. I was young, but it was not my responsibility because I, I, I was a dream for me. The other players, the former players at that time, Didi, Favá, Garincha, you know, Newton Santos, those players was you know, the former player, was the most experienced player. But to me, the World Cup in 70 in Mexico, right. that was tough for me. You know, that's because, because, because you were the big star. Exactly. Then uh, I, I, I announced before the World Cup will be my last World Cup. No, and then at the pressure, you say, oh, my God, 
will be my last. <laughs> Please help me. And God was very good with me because that World Cup, that moment was very difficult for me. That was a difficult moment for you because of, was it because of the pressure you put on yourself to finish with a win? Because all Brazil you know, started to wait the victory, the, the, my last World Cup, I, I decided no, he tired. It was that's why. But the, the first World Cup was fantastic. But I wasn't dream. It was only dream. <laughs> can, can I suggest to you that perhaps your time in America, in New York, because of the pressure you felt at Santos and because of the pressure you felt for, with the Brazilian national team, that you could really relax and enjoy your football in New York? Is is that true? Well, this is more or less what you say, more or less. Because at the same time, because uh, Brazil was champion in 70, Santos, my team, was champion in 73, the, the World Cup in, mm. in, in Brazil. Then, that time, I have a lot of propose to go to Italy, to go to England, to go to Spain, Mexico. I had, coincidentally, Mr. Kinsinger, he was in Sao Paulo That's that right. time. And then he invited me and said, listen, we want to, to promote the, the, the soccer in the United States because we have the, all the, the university, the college. You, did you want to, to, to be with us, to help us with the football? Then I say, but how, how come? For, no, no, you go there. You give a clinic in college, you play with the New York Cosmos, the new team. I thought I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, Mr. Kissinger doesn't Mr. joke. Kissinger. <laughs> then I was serious. I say, okay, I, I have this experience. And then I have to thank him because it was for me, for my, for my identity, was one of the best things God gave it to me because I learned English. I have opportunity to do a lot of work outside of football and promote football. No? All right. I've been told I have only one more question for you, so I'm going to make it a good one. Um, you said recently that you feel right now there's only two world-class, two great players in the world at the moment, Ronaldo, Messi, maybe Neymar, and that there were way more world players, world-quality players back in the 70s when you played. Why, why do you think there are only a few great players right now? It's, it's a good question, good question, because we talk a lot about this. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I think before, in my time, the players used to be you know, linked with the team, right. with the president. Now, they, the, the players are linked with the managers, you know, the empresarios. Then The agents. The agents, right. the agents. With 17, 18, uh, 19 years old, they didn't stay more in Brazil, they didn't stay more in Argentina. They, 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 they didn't have the opportunity to, to get this, you know, established. That, I think, is the big problem because, as you mentioned, Neymar. We talk about Neymar in Brazil now, but uh, only Neymar is too little to, you know, to be responsible, to be champion. In my time, we have a Garrincha, Didi, Pelé, Vava, Socat, Pepe, no? All over the world, you have a you know, Cruyff, you have Beckenbauer, you have a, you know, 
Bobby Charlton. Bobby Charlton, Bobby, Bobby Moore. Yeah, you know, George Best. George Best was the, the one of, to me, was, he was the second best in the world. I am the first, he's the second. <laughs> he, he, God bless him, he would have been very happy with that. No, and the other, other players like Cruyff, you know, like Nexa. Today you, you talk about uh, Neymar and Messi. I think it's too little for the football. Pele, thank you so much for your time and it's an honour to you. meet you. My pleasure. Thank my you pleasure. so much. Good luck. Fantastic. That was me and Edson Aranches de Nascimento. Pele. He is, he's a charming guy. He was. It was unbelievable. Like I said, I wanted to ask him why he considered himself the greatest Brazilian player, the greatest player of all time. Like why he was so, because he had been quite dismissive of Neymar. You know, you know, Neymar's not at my level or he hasn't done X or Y yet. Or, and, and even Ronaldinho. And I, want, I wanted to go in and say, well, you never even played in Europe. You know, <laughs> I went in with this kind of, I don't know, fiercely, I was going to, stick these questions to this elderly man kind of journalism and uh, he just charmed me you melted I did yep uh, so pretty cool uh, good stuff uh, let's see we have a mailbag now to close out with well we definitely do have a mailbag Andrew caughtoffsidepod at gmail.com uh, caughtoffside ESPN on Instagram and at Pod on Twitter follow us there please go and follow us there leave us a review on iTunes uh, too uh, let's begin with uh, Zlatan uh, Ibrahimovic and his comments on LeBron James. A bunch of us, a bunch of our listeners rather, have asked us to talk about this. Um, so basically, Zlatan in an interview uh, last week, you all know what he said. He said that uh, LeBron James, people like him, should should stick to being athletes, should not get involved in politics. They shouldn't do the politics. And, yeah. um, LeBron, and Zlatan, he actually Zlatan doubled down on it again today. He said, oh. politics divide us, sports unite us. Which is a little bit of a cop-out, really. Um, it, was, it was strange for me because he picked on LeBron and, you know, Zlatan is you know, someone who, who told uh, reporters in Los Angeles that his hero, his idol, was Muhammad Ali. Now, there's a guy who, who stuck to sports. There's a guy who... <laughs> never injected himself or never took a stand on things happening in his community or in the wider world. Yeah. For me, we've talked about this before. And for me, my thoughts on this are simple. I, I basically reject the notion of stick to sports. Uh, it's, um, I don't know, the, the whole premise of that, I just think is inaccurate. If you, I think every athlete, every person should have the choice to stick to whatever they want to stick to. Like if you are an athlete and you want to go the route of Zlatan and stick to sports, I'm fine with that. I don't think that everybody needs to get involved if, that, if they're not comfortable kind of dancing in that arena. Having said that, if you're someone like LeBron who's educated on these issues and they, these issues mean a lot to him and you choose to use your platform and your celebrity to try to bring about some change, I'm good with that too. I don't think any of us should be required to stick to anything. You know, like the, the whole idea of being forced to stick to whatever your chosen profession is, is nonsense and ridiculous. And the fact that this has become such an issue is just very, it's very strange to me. Yeah, I, I don't understand it. And um, the idea that, that sport and politics don't intersect regularly and at many different junctures and points is, is, is ridiculous. But also, too, though, with Zlatan's premise of, you know, politics divide us, sports unite us, think about the things that LeBron in particular is taking a stand on. These are like social justice and racial equality issues. I mean, you talk about who's trying to do the work of uniting. I would think somebody who's kind of playing in that area 
more so than than what Zlatan is talking about. I mean, social justice, racial equality, like these are these are like the defining unification uh, topics of of this era. And Zlatan spoken before how he uh, suffered prejudice when he was younger in his in his home country of Sweden. So how we cannot see the correlation between speaking out on that and LeBron James speaking out for his community and, and other communities, I don't get it. But I will say this. I, I do think sometimes that the minute that camera starts rolling, the minute that red light goes on, some people start talking and their half-baked, not fully formed ideas come spilling out. And they've forgotten what they've said in the past. They don't put things in context. And uh, mouth kind of over-engages and brain is left off because, you know, you can't have Muhammad Ali as your idol and hold this opinion. I don't think you can do the, the two things. Unless he's just really strictly talking about boxing technique. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Narrowbrook, uh, wondering if you guys can look into this further. Uh, could this be the future of Barcelona-sized club someday? How much did this have to do with massive conglomerate ownership that maybe lacks any cultural social loyalty to the club and sees it purely in financial terms? That is uh, Jeff asking about... Uh, the eve of the start of the Super League in China sees the Super League champions, Jiangsu Football Club, collapse. Um, the retailer, Suning Appliance Group Company, uh, which pretty much owned the largest shares in it, uh, was basically forced to reconsider its investment in the team. Um, Carla Ferreira Marcus does a good piece on Bloomberg. I would tell everybody to go and read that. Um, so basically, the club was, far, was part of the first fully professional top-tier league in the country in the mid-1990s. Um, it faltered until Suning made it one of the wealthiest teams in China. So the retailer bought them. It splurged on Brazilian players like Alex Teixeira, um, and they triumphed in 2020. Unfortunately, it turns out that Suning was better at lavishly accumulating assets than turning a profit on its sports investment. Um, they were part owners in Inter Milan. Uh, the group snapped up broadcast rights, uh, tried to buy a leading soccer agency, and then everything just collapsed. Debt and delayed salaries hobbled the Chinese club and Teixeira's contract expired. The English Premier League cancelled its television deal last year over missed payments. Basically, much of Chinese football spending abroad, assuming were no exception, was an exercise in pricey corporate hubris that was never likely to end well. So close to $3 billion was spent buying uh, European soccer teams between 2015 and 2017. It's less clear why there's been next to no progress back home with the more humble job of turning the top-tier Super League into a credible competition despite plentiful cash, official attention, and millions of eager fans. Just seems like a lot of money thrown at it, not a lot of thought. And uh, the minute one of these large corporations was struggling itself and had to pull out of its football operation, the clubs collapsed. I don't think it's something that could happen in Europe in the same way with a Barcelona, though. Um, I think there will always be a Barcelona in a way that there won't always be um, Jiangsu Football Club. There you go. I think you, uh, I think you pretty much covered that. I think... <laughs> Andrew, Andrew uh, I know I could see your eyes glaze over with this one, but, but the, the models are different. Um, Bar Barcelona is, you know, socio-driven... Um, although it has its own troubles right now, it's not, it's not being propped up entirely by a retail company. All right. That's, uh, that's the end of my part of the oh, mailbag. Oh, I thought you had more. I actually have a couple as well. Jonathan from Tejas sent me a note. He said, I have one question for you at a gunling as an avid soccer fan. My favorite world cup was 2014. 
excuse me, was 2014. Which one was your favorite? Uh, this one, this one is actually pretty easy for me. I would say the 2002 World Cup. Hmm. Um, I mean, the way it started, Senegal's stunning upset of France. Then for like for the American soccer fan, the U.S. Portugal game, uh, U.S. South Korea, the, the Friedel penalty save. Then the U.S. getting through on the drama of Korea's upset win against Portugal. U.S. beating Mexico in a World Cup round of 16. And then, like, even beyond the U.S. stuff, the, the entire experience of just watching, like, the South Korean fan base take to that team was exhilarating. Like, the, the South Korea-Italy round of 16 golden goal winner from on. Uh, it, it was, in terms of, like, a non-American uh, fan game, that's about as memorable of a moment as I can think of in a World Cup for me personally. Um, then, like, this was really fun Brazil with Ronaldo in his prime. Um, two giants of world soccer in Brazil and Germany facing off in a final. The only real drawback I would say from this was that you didn't really get an epic game in the semis or the final. Maybe even I'd have to go back and relook at the quarterfinals, but it, it didn't feel like there was like that one standout from the, the semis or the mm. final. But overall, I would say the O2 World Cup is, is my favorite. Oh, uh, yeah. Um... I enjoyed 98 a lot, and I love 1994. 94 is an underrated World Cup, in my view. You had Bulgaria going deep, beating Germany. You had Ireland beating Italy early on. Um, You had that great story where Italy start off terribly, losing to Ireland, and then go all the way to the final with Roberto Baggio just leading the team, and then the the absolute disaster at the end. And you had the Brazil-Holland 3-2 game. Yeah. But I enjoyed most tournaments anyway. I actually really enjoyed 2018. I thought 2018 was fun. Uh, And then finally, I have one more here from Eddie Sanchez, who uh, wrote to us. He said, I recently watched both 1917 and Dunkirk, and I liked both quite a lot. I forgot which one people told you they didn't like. I'm here to tell you they're wrong. Both films are great. Thank you, Eddie. It was Dunkirk that, uh, to me, shockingly, a lot of people wrote into us and told us that they did not like it. I don't get that. I'll forever disagree with it, but I guess that is, uh, that's what movies and, and entertainment is all about. We can like what we want to like and not like what we don't want to like. But I think they're both great, and so I'm with you. And that is about it, my friend. That's a big pod. That is a big one. Our thanks to Pele for uh, giving JJ some time for you to charm him. Uh, We will be back, of course, next week. Lots of midweek stuff and weekend stuff. Next week's podcast will be massive, I'm sure, much like this one. JJ, I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. To you, I say... Check you later, fun boy. See ya. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 